Just to start with some humor this morning, an old farmer, they say his name was Joe, went to the big city one weekend and attended a big city church. He came home and his wife asked him how it was. Well, said the farmer, it was good. They did something different though. They sang praise choruses instead of hymns. Praise choruses, she said, what are those? Oh, they're okay, the farmer said. They're sort of like hymns, he said, only they're different. And of course, his wife asked him, what's the difference? He said, well, if I said the cows are in the corn, that would be a hymn. But if I were to say to you, Martha, 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 oh, Martha, 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 the cows, the big cows, the brown cows, the black cows, the white cows, the cows, cows, cows are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, Then if I were to repeat the whole thing four or five times, that would be a praise chorus. (laughs) The next weekend, his nephew, a young Christian from the big city, came to visit his Uncle Joe and Aunt Martha, and he attended their local church in the small town. When he went home, his mother asked him how it was. Well, he said it was good. They did something different, however. They sang hymns instead of praise choruses. Hymns, asked his mother, what are those? The young man said, well, it's like this. If Uncle Joe were to say to Aunt Martha, the cows are in the corn, then that would be a praise chorus. But if he were to say, oh, Martha, dear Martha, hear thou my cry, inclinest thine ear to the words of my mouth, turn thou thine whole wondrous ear by and by to the righteous, inimitable, glorious truth. Yea, those cows and glad bovine, rebellious delight, have broke free from their shackles, their warm pens eschewed. Then goaded by minions of darkness and night, they all, my sweet corn, have eschewed. Then if, he were, then if they were to do only one, verses 1, 3, and 4, and do a key change in the last verse, that would be a hymn. So there you have it. Kind of hit both sides, didn't I? Well... I think far too often we allow some of those things about the music that we like to be a distraction to worship. And I just, I just want to talk to you about that today, focusing on God in our worship and making sure that He is at the center and, and not other things that tend, to, that tend to distract us. We're going to be in Revelation 4. You, you may want to follow along there. We'll be looking uh, very closely at uh, verses uh, 8 and following uh, of that passage, but let me give you some thoughts by way of introduction too as we begin. We often take God out of the concept of worship and insert ourselves by the way we use the word worship itself. For instance, have you heard others or maybe even yourself or me saying things like this, where do you worship? Did you attend a worship service today? Or I skipped worship and just came for the sermon. Or maybe vice versa, I wanted to skip the sermon, so I just came for worship. I prefer contemporary worship. I don't like how they do worship. As if worship was ever about us and our preferences. As if it were ever an adjective for a kind of service or music or pastoral position. Worship is the acknowledgement of God's worthship. He is worthy. And the expression of adoration for him. It is something God deserves from every one of us. In heaven, 
Worship will be all about our creator, sustainer, and savior. It will be about his preferences, not ours. We will be privileged participants in proclaiming praise and glory to the only one worthy of praise, who gave his life for ours so we could spend eternity in communion with him. Because we will no longer possess a sin nature, we will finally be complete in Christ, our critical hearts will be transformed into hearts of praise, and the focus will be solely on Jesus and who he is and what he accomplished for us by God's grace. No longer will be that there will be discussions or, or differences on what type of worship we like. Your offering of worship will be absent of you and all about him. I want you to consider with me a teaching about prayer that Jesus gives to us in Matthew chapter 6. And maybe you want to find your place there. I want to read to you verses 9 through 13 from, from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And I want you to think as we read through, how could this teaching on prayer be related to our worship here on earth. Listen closely, see if you can pick that out, and I'll, of course, identify it for you. This, then, is how you should pray, Jesus said. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What words do you think should correlate from this teaching on prayer by Jesus to our present day worship? The words, in my opinion, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, are critical to understanding God's desire for our earthly corporate worship. If Jesus was our worship leader, what do you think that would look like? Just take a moment and consider that question with me. If Jesus were our worship leader, what does that look like? Surely the passages that describe heavenly worship will tell us. It's been said, and perhaps you've heard, if you dangle over hell for 15 seconds, you will change the way that you live. I want us in, in this mini-series of messages to look into heaven and as a result change the way that we worship. Revelation 4 is going to serve as our text this morning. We've already read through it. And here we learn that worship in heaven will be God-centered. Paul David Tripp put it this way, corporate worship is a regular gracious reminder that it's not about you. You've been born into a life that is a celebration of another. Lamar Boschman, in his book, A Heart for Worship, wrote these words, worship is first and foremost for his benefit, not ours, though it is marvelous to discover that in giving him pleasure, we ourselves enter 
into what can become our richest and most wholesome experience in life. Warren Wiersbe wrote these words on worship. Worship is the believer's response of all that they are to what God is and says and does. And Sam Storms put it this way. If you come to worship for any reason other than the joy and pleasure and satisfaction that are to be found in God, you dishonor him. God's greatest delight is your delight in him. But what has happened in the modern church? What has happened to us? What has happened to us is we have made it very easy for people to gather and worship based on their preferences, based on what they like, and what happens. Our focus shifts off of God and is squarely on us. And the worship experience has become about God's people rather than about the God of the people. So I want you to think where you are. I, I'm not going to hastily generalize this morning and say that everybody here has this wrong. I'm not saying that. Don't get me wrong and don't be offended in that way. But I want every one of us to consider what drives us in our worship. Is it our preferences? Is it what we like? Uh, is it what we think we get out of the experience? Or can we say that when we worship, it truly is all about God. I'm telling you right now, when we get to heaven, it's going to be all about God. So we might as well practice together now, don't you think? Wasn't that a good idea? It's okay. I know you're scared, but you can say amen. Okay, it's okay. You don't know where this is going, do you? <laughs> but I want to talk to you today about God-centered worship. You know, uh, Genesis Bible Church has taken some steps, I think some really, really good steps and I think we have some more steps to take in, in this area. We have made it very easy uh, for you to, to worship God. I, I believe we have people who are dedicated. More work than what you realize goes into what you saw this morning in our worship leaders. Wasn't it great to see a couple of young men up here on the guitars? Wasn't that great? If you enjoyed that, do something, okay? Do something, all right? Wasn't that great? We like the old people up here too, but I, I just love seeing those kids up here playing their guitars. That's, that's awesome. I'll tell you what though, if we were to take the team, right, and talk to them today and say, how do you feel about this, right? How do you feel about this? Uh, I think every one of them, even though they've poured themselves into it and given of their time and resources and talent to practice and to get ready for this morning, I think they would tell us that they don't want the attention. I really believe this. I really believe that they want God to receive the glory and the honor. And they want God to be the focus, not them. I believe that. I want that to transfer to all of us who sit in these chairs week after week after week. Could we do that too? That, that we, when we gathered, that we didn't want worship to be all about us, but we wanted it to be all about God. How does that happen? How can that happen every Sunday? It can happen if we are overwhelmed by who God is. That's how it can happen. 
And that is the scene that unfolds and that is recorded in Revelation chapter 4. These heavenly worshipers were overwhelmed with God. If you take anything away uh, with you today, I just I want you to take this away. That you would consider that every time you come to this place and involve yourself in corporate worship in our gatherings, that you are going to determine and you are going to be dedicated to this. That you want to be overwhelmed by God to the point where nothing else matters when you come in here. How many of us are there? I'm not claiming to be there, okay? I'm not. Because I fight with the same stuff that you do. I fight with the same desires, the same motivations. I fight with the same temptations. I fight with the same distractions. If I don't like a song, I'm tempted to just turn it off and complain about it later. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. She'll tell you. She'll tell you, right? Are, are we that way together? Do we do that? We don't like something Maybe we don't like what somebody's wearing or whatever. We allow it to distract us from worshiping God. And we've made it all about us at that point, haven't we? You know, I think I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, the preacher was standing at the door and someone as they were leaving said to him, well, I didn't really care for worship today. He said, good, it wasn't for you anyway, right? We need to live there in that reality that we realize that that this is not all about us. It's not all about us at all. And it's supposed to be about God. Let me give you four things that should overwhelm you every time you involve yourself in corporate worship. They're listed for you. You can fill in the blanks today. But I want us to really make this our goal, that we would be overwhelmed by these things about God when we worship and not distracted by anything else that doesn't really matter. Because I'm telling you, in heaven, it's not going to be about what we like. There isn't going to be a contemporary street in heaven and a traditional street in heaven. Can I have an amen? Right? It's just not going to be that way. We're going to worship God together, probably in ways we never dreamed of. Probably in ways we never dreamed of. All right. First of all, as we come together to worship, let us be overwhelmed as these heavenly worshipers were by God's infinite goodness. What do I mean by that? Well, look at the text. Let's, let's go there to verse 8. The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. God is infinitely good because God is is holy. He is set apart from all that is sin. And, and this ought to overwhelm us as we come here in our corporate gatherings to worship God. We must be overwhelmed by his holiness. Could we look at an Old Testament passage? Find your way to Isaiah chapter 6, please. Isaiah chapter 6. We need to allow ourselves, like Isaiah, to be wrecked by God's holiness. I mean every time we come in this room, every time we gather to, to worship, and not just then, of course, in our personal worship, but I want us as a faith community to get to the point that every time we gather here, it's all about God, and we are wrecked by His holiness so that we come here with all humility 
not being critical or being concerned that everything isn't done the way we want or that we are not singing the songs that we like or that one instrument is too loud or another is this, but overwhelmed by the holiness of God. Look at Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He was lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Can we read that together? Let's just read that together. Ready, church? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined or wrecked because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was so overwhelmed by the holiness, the infinite goodness of God, that it wrecked him. The heavenly worshipers were dominated by thoughts of the infinite goodness of God as they worshiped there in the throne room. We too must be wrecked as we come into his presence in corporate worship because it will enable us to remain humble and focused on all that really matters. What really matters is that we see our sin in light of his holiness. What really matters is that we lift our voices with all in our faith community to bring him glory. What really matters is that we determine to avoid being distracted by anything that would cause us to disregard God's holiness and embrace a cheap substitute. Would you make the decision with me this morning that every time we gather for corporate worship that you want to be overwhelmed with the infinite goodness of God and, and wrecked by it and be humble as you come to worship? Can we do that together? I can't say that when we come together every time that I think of God's holiness, I, maybe if it appears in a song, maybe like this morning, but I want my heart to be dominated with thoughts of his infinite goodness and his holiness because I want to come together with you with humility, glorifying God and serving others together instead of just looking out for myself. And I think looking at the infinite goodness of God and being dominated by it is a good start. So I ask you to join me in that. Back in Revelation 4, we find that these heavenly worshipers were also overwhelmed by the infinite greatness of God. He's holy, but he's also identified as the Almighty. He is great. He is almighty. Do you know that if all other forces combined their strength, God would still be more powerful? Do you know that? Can we go back to Job? Find your place to the book of Job in chapter 26. Job chapter 26, and I, I want to take the time to read you this chapter. Job had absorbed somehow through 
through God revealing it to him. That must have been an amazing classroom experience for Job. Because God reveals to him and teaches to him his infinite greatness. And Job is able to put these words, we have these words written down from, from Job's testimony about the greatness of God. Listen to these words as Job responds. Then Job responded, What a help you are to the weak. How you have saved the arm without strength. What counsel you've given to one without wisdom. What helpful insight you have abundantly provided. To whom have you uttered words and whose spirit was expressed through you? And here he he begins to talk about the greatness of God. The departed spirits tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is Sheol before him. And Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds and the cloud does not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon and spreads his cloud over it. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. He quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his breath the heavens are cleared. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways. Let that sink in for a moment. And how faint a word we hear of him. But his mighty thunder, who can understand? Infinitely great. He is almighty. How is it, given God's greatness, that we could allow many other insignificant things to occupy our hearts and minds when we gather for corporate worship? How is that? His greatness should be so overwhelming to us that it crowds out all of those things that are insignificant and irrelevant to us giving God glory. Yet how many of us, week after week after week, come to gatherings and what occupies the space in our hearts and in our minds is anything but the infinite greatness of God. And we are distracted by so many other things that don't matter, that are irrelevant and insignificant. Let's decide and determine together to be overwhelmed by the infinite greatness of God as we assemble. There's a third thing that overwhelmed these heavenly worshipers. I've called it infinite endurance. We find in our text the words who was and is and is to come. Back to Revelation 4. He is this one who was and who is and is to come there in verse number 8. What does this mean? Well, this means that God is eternal He is infinite in his endurance. He is eternal. He is not bound by space or time. He has no boundaries whatsoever. It means, of course, that there will never be a time when God will cease to exist and therefore he will always be the worthy object of our worship. We will never have a good excuse for not giving him that rightful place in our minds and hearts because he is He is infinitely enduring. He is eternal. He will always and has always existed. And he therefore will be available for our 
worship. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said, God lives in the everlasting now. As we sing and worship together, we are reminded of his infinite endurance that he is eternal. And I hope that that causes us to trust him with whatever's going on in our life, especially the future. If we were to take a poll as you left this morning and ask how many of us have concerns about the future, maybe every one of us have some concerns about the future. We need to learn to trust the one who has already been there with the future. You see, in his omniscience, he knows what's coming in the future, but because he is eternal, he's already been there. He has no boundaries of space and time. He's eternal. Trust him. He certainly deserves to be the object of our worship. Be overwhelmed by the fact that he is eternal as you worship. Finally, and we'll bring it to a close today, we see that the heavenly worshipers were overwhelmed with the infinite worthiness of our great God. They say clearly, worthy are you, our Lord and God. Look at verse 11 in Revelation 4. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. As creator and sustainer of all things, he will remain infinitely worthy of our undivided attention and loyalty. I understand and know that, that what I am calling us to as a faith community is counter to the popular Christian culture of the day. I get it. But I'm going to tell you there is something more important than the Christian culture of the day. And it is being overwhelmed by our great God. And it is coming together as a faith community in God-centered worship. That is more important than popular Christian culture. And one day with you, I'd like to stand before God with the testimony that we glorified God together and that we had God-centered worship together at Jenison Bible Church and that we didn't give the Christian pop culture of the day the throne, but we kept God on the throne. That's what I want to do with you, and that's, that's by God's grace where we're going to continue to move. But it's going to take a commitment on all of our parts. We must be committed to being overwhelmed by the infinite goodness of God, to being overwhelmed by the infinite greatness of God and his infinite endurance as well as his infinite worthiness. These truly are the things that matter. Not us, not us at all, but these are truly the things that matter. And by God's grace, I want to call us to passionately pursue these things. Let's pray, please. Father, I pray that you would be glorified in our response to your truth today. Help us to understand that you are worthy and that our worship must be God-centered. Help us to avoid being distracted and may we be dedicated and committed to pursuing being overwhelmed by you. Help us to 
be transparent and honest about where we are as worshipers. May you be glorified in our response to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.